Welcome to Flashback, American Historians on Movies. I'm Katie Fapp, a doctoral student in American History at the University of Oxford's Rothermere American Institute, and I'm here to explore American history as seen through the lens of America's most popular history maker, Hollywood. Each episode, I'm joined by another historian as we discuss a movie that covers their own field of expertise. Today, I'm joined by Bruce Shulman to discuss Saturday Night Fever, the 1977 drama film about young men and disco in working-class Brooklyn. Uh, Bruce is the Harold V. Harmsworth Visiting Professor of American History at the University of Oxford and a historian of 20th century American politics. Uh, he also literally wrote the book on the 70s. So welcome, Bruce. I'm happy for you to be here. I'm delighted to be here, Katie. It's a, it's a great pleasure. That's great. Uh, it's, this is such, I'm really excited. This is um, a flashback first as well. Um, so up until this point, we have only really covered movies that were made outside of the time period that they depict. Uh, but this is our first, what I'm kind of figuring in my head as a primary source movie. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was made like, you know, in the seventies, this is, this was contemporary when it was, when it came out. So it's a new territory for the podcast. Yeah. I think it's actually both a product of that time period that reflects it, but also, um, an important kind of shaper of people's understandings of what that period is that has endured for better or worse for quite a long time now. Yeah, definitely. We can get into it more, but I mean, I kind of, you know, I watched this for the first time for this podcast um, and within the first like 10 minutes, I was like, okay, so this is everything I know about disco comes from this movie pretty much. Um, but before we get too much into the weeds, uh, Bruce, would you like to talk about maybe like how your work intersects with this and, and your relationship with Saturday Night Fever as a movie, like when you first saw it? Well, I'm old enough that I first saw it in 1977 during its original run in movie theaters. Um, you know, it was the, um, the senior year of high school beginning of college year for me, 1977. And I spent my high school years on Long Island, so not far away from the scene of Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, where most of the movie is set. And I too, like the main characters, would venture into Manhattan, which represented this alternative, this glistening, and yet at the same time menacing alternative reality and place of possibility for me. Um, I certainly sort of grew up in that, uh, in that era of disco as well. But then professionally, um, later in my career, it just became obvious to me that despite all the attention that modern American historians gave to the 1960s, largely because much of that history was written by a generation of scholars who came of age amongst the turmoil and struggles of the 1960s, that in fact the 1970s were really more important, (laughs) at least in shaping the trajectory of the contemporary United States, and that if we wanted to understand the subsequent 
40 years in American politics, culture, and society. We really had to go back to the 1970s. And to me, Saturday Night Fever is a very important and also resonant document that speaks to many different aspects of American life uh, in the 1970s. Even though the movie isn't really remembered as such, I think that you are right to say that it's remembered mostly as uh, the thing that made disco an international sensation. The, the soundtrack was briefly the biggest selling uh, record album of all time. And it also, of course, kind of catapulted into international stardom the, uh, mm -hmm. the career of John Travolta, the young John Travolta, who mm -hmm. is the star of the film. Yeah. Okay, great. So you were there, boots on the ground, when, uh, when Saturday Night Fever uh, hit, uh, hit the streets, uh, just like John Travolta at the opening credits. Great. Um, okay, so that's, yeah, I'd love to talk about this, um, obviously, because we're doing the episode on it. But that's really exciting. Yeah, I was really, so I, like I said a few minutes ago, this is the first time I watched it. And I just kind of knew it as a, you know, a movie about a man who wants to win a dance competition that was you know, based on disco music with the Bee Gees and all that. Um, and I was really surprised by kind of the movie's main dramatic, truly like main dramatic tension of this working class young man trying to make it and the kind of like the violence and the circumstances of his life outside of the disco and why he goes to the disco, <laughs> really. Because that had that's really not kind of portrayed in all of I guess like the popular remembrances of this movie. No, I think your experience is really common. People that see this for the first time, that have that idea, that have seen maybe clips of some of the iconic dance scenes in the film, or have seen that famous opening sequence of of. John Travolta's character, the 19-year-old Tony Manero, kind of walking down his Brooklyn street and stopping for his double-stacked slice of pizza to the sound of the, I loved the that Bee Gees, idea. right? <laughs> um, that, um, that then when you watch the movie, it's kind of uh, surprising. I mean, I mean, he is really sort of navigating a community, indeed, a kind, you know, a United States culture that's crumbling. Right? He's stuck in a dead end job at a paint store, with really seemingly few prospects for getting ahead in the world. His father is unemployed and really unmanned by the experience. The neighborhood is roiled by racial and ethnic tensions and violence. Uh, you know, gender roles and expectations mm. are are up for grabs. Um, you know, the sort of all the things that you might have relied on and that Tony's character's parents relied on, church, family, labor union, none of those are reliable. And so, you know, what's what's a boy to do? <laughs> and that <laughs> and uh, you know, um, and uh, you know, for Tony and for Stephanie, who is the neighborhood girl with dreams of becoming, you know, sort of a sophisticated woman of class who mm -hmm. becomes his dance partner, you know, really the only place they feel whole is on the dance floor and the mm -hmm. only escape they see from the grim realities of their lives lie across the bridge in Manhattan. 
Um, yeah. And I don't know if you, I mean, I don't know if spoilers are okay, but as you... Yes. Yeah, oh, yes. I, you, I was going to say, after, you, um, <laughs> if you want to do now, so we, um, I challenge each guest with a 60-second plot description. Uh, so for you to explain the plot of the movie in 60 seconds or less, which has been done before, uh, for any listeners who haven't seen the movie but still want to engage in the conversation. <clears throat> um, so if we want to do that now before you get into more maybe like spoilery specifics yeah. then. Well, what I, I mean, you know, not to repeat myself, but the film sure. really follows Travolta's character, this 19-year-old boy named Tony Monero, oh, as right. he na- navigates yeah. this rapidly changing, kind of disintegrating world of white ethnic Brooklyn, New York. Um, mm-hmm. And... Um, and his way out and up is through disco dancing and also this dream of what Manhattan across the bridge, this glistening city of hope and wealth and class and possibility might provide. And along the way, the movie features Tony and his friends in a gang fight. There's a gang rape, racial slurs, a fallen priest, a sexual assault. And probably the circumstances are a little bit unclear, a suicide and revelations of sexual harassment in the office place. Um, In the end, Tony decides to leave Brooklyn, to leave behind his friends, really the entire world he has known, and make a new life for himself over in Manhattan. He even says that he's going to try to become friends with Stephanie, his dance partner. Even mm-hmm. though she asks him, and, and he admits that he's not even sure he's capable of being friends with a woman. Right. That was, yeah, almost, like, you were a little bit over, but that was great. That was like 60 seconds. Well done. Right. Um, yeah, that's a great summation, right? This kind of, it's funny that you kind of end on that note as well, because it makes me think of another iconic, like, New York movie, Harry Met Sally. Um, it would come, I guess, about like 10 years after this. But yeah, so this kind of this tale of disco um, all wrapped up in this, you know, like you said, like the kind of like crumbling um, uh, structures of community in Brooklyn at this time and all that entails. Um, so if we want, I don't, where do we even start? Um, well, where were you going to go um, before I kind of interrupted you with the challenge? Uh, you said like spoiler alert and then well, I, mean, I, I cut did, you off. I, I think that one of the things that makes the film so surprising and unsettling mm. for people that come to it as this disco dancing film um, is, you know, a lot of is the violence and the yeah. grimness of it. I think that that's one thing that that I think people find um, surprising. I think you're actually right about it being a film that also is speaking to other films, or at least is echoing. There are real echoes of West Side Story. There are echoes. I was thinking of, of that as there well. There are echoes yep. of The Godfather in it as well, mm-hmm. um, uh, very much. I mean, for me, the there are two scenes that dominate the movie, and those aren't the disco dancing scenes. Those aren't the scenes of violence. In some ways, they're not the most dramatic scenes. They're scenes just with people sitting at a table talking to each other. Um, And the first is very early in the movie when Tony Mm -hmm. goes home for dinner, and um, 
and is having dinner with his family, and we've got three generations there, you know, his sort of silent Italian grandmother, his parents, and Tony and his sister, and of course, the photograph of the older brother, Father Frank mm -hmm. Jr., who is the person that everyone's proud of because he's, he's become a Catholic priest. But what we learn very quickly is that this is not some kind of wonderful family scene, that this is a family in dissolution, that Tony's father, who's worked in construction all his life and always brought home a paycheck, now is unemployed, and because of that, he has lost his authority in the family. His wife actually hits him in the scene, and he says, you know, all the time I was working, you never hit me. Um, the, there's tension between father and son as well. We get a sense of this, fa this extended family no longer working. And there are also, of course, comic elements to the scene because Tony comes down to dinner dressed in his in his shirt, in his Kiana polyester going out shirt. And he's got like a big like cloth napkin covering yeah. him and, and doesn't want anybody to touch his shirt because he spends yeah, or a lot his of hair. time or his hair because yep. he spends a lot of time getting his working on his hair and so on. Mm -hmm. And then there's another scene, you know, later in the movie in which he is, you know, approaching Stephanie wants her to become his dance partner, is also clearly interested in her and, you know, invites her to coffee, um, mm. though Stephanie has tea because all the women who work in her office in Manhattan, they just drink tea with lemon, and, and that's the sophisticated drink, and he drinks mm -hmm. and. Again, there are comic elements because the 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 actor actress I think her name is Leslie Ann Gormley who plays uh, yeah plays the plays her Karen the, Lynn Gorney yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, sorry plays the yeah, uh, that's right plays the um uh, plays the scene with you know this really heavy Brooklyn accent and yeah. she tries to explain to Tony why she is drawn to. Manhattan and what it represents and she says that that is completely different from Brooklyn right across the bridge that the people mm -hmm. are beautiful that the offices are beautiful that the clothes are beautiful that the secretaries even the secretaries they always shop at she doesn't say Bonwit Teller. She says something like Bonwit Taylor, you know, uh, with a very heavy uh, <laughs> yeah. an accent. And and Tony at that point is still sort of suspicious of that and thinks mm -hmm. that there's something maybe a little bit phony about Stephanie wanting to kind of put aside the world she lived in. and She sort of, grew up in. And, yeah. And, um, and, uh, and then she comes at him and says, you know, you can't handle hearing about a life that's so much different from your own. And he says, by different, you mean better. And she says, yes. And at the end of this somewhat uncomfortable conversation, she tells him something along the lines of, you're nowhere on the way to no place. Um, and makes it clear that he never even thought about going to college and so on. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I, I think that the film sort of makes it clear that something that had been a reality for blue-collar working-class Americans for most of the post-World War II period that saw so many 
blue-collar working-class Americans sort of find their way into more or less comfortable, secure, middle-class, home-owning existences that by the 1970s that they can no longer rely on that and that the institutions they relied on, the expectations they had are falling apart, much like Tony's family is falling apart with his father unemployed. And something new is taking shape, but mm. uh, but they're not they don't quite fit into that. Sure. Yeah. No, it's a great read. I think there's a moment in that, that, that whole scene you kind of described with um, the Stephanie character as well, where like Tony is still saying like, I drink coffee, right? Yes. Like he's like kind of like leaning into yeah. it. But there's also the sense that, I mean, she's, she's just like, you know, kind of faking it too. She makes it as well. Right. Like she's like, you know, Romeo and Juliet. And he's like Shakespeare. And she's like, no, the, I can't the even, the director's the name. Film. Yeah. Thank yeah, you. The yeah, Zeffirelli yeah, film. Yeah. Right. He's like, yeah. he actually almost kind of knows more than her um, in a certain sense, but yeah, it's an interesting, um, I think it's it's interesting that you kind of say as well that like the movies remembered. Uh, let me get the quote exactly right. Um, uh, a memorable, if slightly ridiculous, place in the history of American popular mm-hmm. culture. Because I you know myself, you know, kind of growing up in the early two thousands, um, and my parents were children in the seventies as well. It kind of the seventies was to me like that seventies show, and you know, a, a man in a white polyester suit mm. striking the disco pose as I knew it. Um, but whenever I asked my parents about it, they were always kind of like, oh, it, I, not not good memories for me, right? <laughs> kind of like gas lines and maybe the California version of um, what went wrong in the 70s. So it's interesting that it kind of, yeah, just kind of like sits in this place in American history where there's kind of, I think in your book on the 70s, you kind of just like America figuring itself out, right? Because it, it's this like post-60s moment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, in the 60s, we've had women's lib. Um, and kind of all these big social forces at play. And then in the 70s, you have to deal with the aftermath of all of those. And like, how does that, how, how do these movements go forward? Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely. I think that the, I think that though that, you know, mayhem and malaise filled 1970s that your parents were, remembering is really on display in Saturday Night Fever that and the um, and I think one of the most surprising things about the film for me and something that really struck me re-watching it is the complexity of John Travolta's character Tony Manero I mean is that Mm -hmm. you know that is he is I mean he is maybe the one character in the film who's not kind of a a cardboard cutout you know, yeah. sort of type or character. <laughs> we could talk about that uh-huh. a bit, yeah. <laughs> um, but but he's not, and you can see that he's someone who is actually kind of really trying to wrestle with not only these sort of changes in you know class mm-hmm. and economy, but also in terms of uh, race and gender. I mean, yeah. Um, you know, he is really trying to figure out like you know, sort of how to go forward in a world in which the expectations that he learned from his, you know, parents and from his peers no longer seem to be working helpful um, in any way. And, um, and you know, you can see that, um, you know, in the climactic dance scene, I feel terrible like right. giving away all the things. Uh, no, no, all, all, all the is, we have to talk about the whole movie. In the, in the, climactic, yeah, da- in the yeah. climactic dance scene. That's really poignant. That's when it, it, the whole thing kind of breaks down, right? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the whole thing breaks down, but, you know, what happens is, 
Tony and Stephanie win the dance contest, but they don't really win the dance contest. Right. That and he is, sees that. Yeah. yeah. Is that when while a Puerto Rican couple are dancing, Tony says they're better than us. They deserve to yeah. win. Stephanie resists that. She just says, no, they're not better. They're different. But he says they're better. And, you know, he is upset when, you know, he, he understands that this club is their home turf and that they're never going to give the Latino couple the first prize. But he goes and hands the check and the big first prize trophy uh-huh. to them at the end and said, and says that they deserve it. So he is sort of no longer comfortable with and has to get himself outside of the kind of racial and ethnic order that prevailed. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly in, you know, his dealings with um, both Stephanie and the other lead female character who's called Um, Annette, Annette, that, that, you know, you know, he's someone who in his peer group, there is a certain kind of, you know, very outwardly exploitative, sexist way of mm-hmm. interacting with women that, uh-huh. you know, includes, we see it in the film, you know, attempted sexual assault and gang rape. Which follows right after this right. this competition, yeah, right. right? Like, it's not like, I always imagine the movie ended with them yeah. triumphantly winning the prize, but no, it's... They win the prize. He's upset that they've won it because he thinks or he sees that the um, this uh, Latino couple was a was a better dance group than them. And then the movie kind of crescendos in this uh, like two instances of sexual violence. Yes. So the but I think at at the you know and I don't want to give too much credit to the Tony Manero character, but hmm. I think that he's also sort of. I think wrestling with those transgressions too. I mean, we see his face in the front seat of the car where the gang rape is happening. And I think we're meant to see him as someone who, you know, is coming to the realization that, you know, that, that that behavior that was so much part of the culture in which he grew up with is something that he doesn't wanna be part of anymore and I think in that last scene where he goes to Stephanie's apartment in in New York in Manhattan and tries to kind of kind of make up for his earlier you know uh, essentially attempted sexual assault that um they have that conversation when she asks if he thinks he he can he can ever be friends with I think she says a girl not a woman but uh and he says, you know, honestly, I don't know, but I can try. So I think that this whole sense that there was a kind of fairly well wrought out working class culture that people had some fairly solid expectations of what the prospects were in life and how their life would turn out and how they would interact for better or worse with other mm-hmm. people and that much of that seems to be sort of up in the air needing to be worked out again i think that's what makes tony's character you know far and away the most interesting part of the film well i think yeah he's really what makes the movie work um we kind of maybe speaking about 
how with the movie's uh, source material as it was um so this movie was based on a new york magazine article called tribal rights of the new saturday night uh written by british uh film or not film sorry music journalist nick khan um now this article is quite infamous because well 20 years after the movie came out um, and kind of catapulted this uh, article to fame, Khan came out and revealed that he had made most of it up. Yeah. <laughs> right? This is almost entirely a work of fiction. Um, I think in the, I think in a retrospective on it, he um, had indeed gone to the real club, that uh, the 2001 um, Odyssey mm-hmm. that they go to. in. Um, but there was a fight outside, so that was real. Um, but then I think somebody threw up on his leg and he saw the fight and kind of panicked and left. And that's the extent of his um, dabbling in disco culture. Um, but he really took most of kind of the what he talks about in that article from his own experiences seeing um, the mod scene in Shepherd's Bush mm-hmm. in London. So it's interesting that this has become kind of like the... Of, you know, such a forceful and memorable representation of disco and working class America in the 1970s. But the the thing it's based on is almost entirely fictional. And as well, like, I mean, it's a really good adaptation, I think, of that article. I tracked it down and read it. And if, you know, if again, like if you're taking it for granted, then I think the movie is actually a really interesting um, or like a like it kind of takes the ideas that are presented in that magazine article and distills them and changes them in a cinematic way that's really effective. Yes, and I think that in part, I mean, because what the filmmakers do in sort of transforming that story, fictional or not, uh, you know, mm-hmm. into the into the cinematic form, um, you know, they they visually evoke the world of working class Brooklyn very effectively. They also as we've already hinted, sort of kind of put this um, very self-consciously into uh, movie history. I mean, so not only does it, you know, feature a fight between, you know, a white and a (laughs) Latino gang, very much Mm -hmm. like West Side Story. Story, But if you've ever seen the film version of West Side Story, it begins with almost the, the same aerial shot that Saturday Night Fever begins with. So, you know, high above New York City and it swoops Mm -hmm. in over the Brooklyn Bridge and then, you know, goes all the way up Manhattan up to the Upper East Side and then it kind of falls Mm -hmm. in on the playground where the Jets and the Sharks are in that first scene where similarly we kind of start up over the Verrazano Narrows Bridge Um, Mm -hmm. with the Manhattan skyline, the no longer there Twin Towers in the, you know, in the background. And then it kind of swoops down through Brooklyn into the Bay Ridge neighborhood until we find, you know, there's Tony walking on on the street past Lenny's Pizza, which just closed about two months ago, believe it or not. Oh, that's a shame. Oh, wow. There are a lot of stories about it because of its kind of iconic role in that movie. Yeah. And so I think that... You know, that um, that kind of, um, you know, the evocations of West Side Story. But then also, Mm. I think maybe even more strongly and with some kind of inside jokes in it, Mm. um, you know, kind of references to the Godfather movies and particularly to the idea that 
you know, you can try, but it's very hard to try to sort of escape the world defined by your ethnicity and class and family and neighborhood. Mm. And uh, at one of the disco scenes, the uh, you know, there's like a woman watching Tony Manero dancing, and she says that he looks just like Al Pacino. Al Pacino, and yeah. then you know, we <laughs> a, a scene or two later, you know, we see that Tony has a poster of a Al poster, Pacino, yeah. and sort of you know doesn't think he looks like him, but identifies with him, and I think that would have sure. you know, I think audiences at the time, of course, would have immediately been thinking about uh, you know the Godfather and seeing that so I think those are are part of you know the sort of the transformation from you know this sort of false documentary text into the into the dramatic movie that it is Mm. yeah definitely Mm. I think yeah the movie is it's interesting to kind of see how it foregrounds the pop culture I was because I mean after we have this kind of like iconic opening sequence to staying alive um and Tony walking through the streets, eating this double pizza, which I still cannot get over. <laughs> like I never thought to put two pieces of pizza on top of each other and eat them at the same time. And then, you know, we, we briefly see him kind of put this shirt on layaway and then ask his boss to, you know, advance him his salary so he can buy the shirt full out. Um, but we see him like the, his whole ritual of getting ready in his room. And I think the set decoration is great because you don't. I think the Al Pacino poster was revealed later. later I think after after the woman has told him, "I just kissed Al Pacino." Um, but, <laughs> but you also see you there. see yeah the giant the giant Farrah Fawcett post Farrah Fawcett poster and then also like the Wonder Woman poster, um, Linda Carter's Wonder Woman. So you kind of have this like it, it is. I'm I guess I was like struck because this movie comes out in. 77 and just like I was struck by the immediacy of kind of the pop cultural world it was living in and maybe now we all as well we can talk about disco and the the place of disco I guess in seven how we remember the 70s and um the I guess maybe the history of disco as well because I think his disco I think is kind of remembered for ending spectacularly with the death of the disco night at in Chicago uh, but I don't know if you wanted to speak a bit about your opinions on disco or. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think that, you know, disco is perhaps the most maligned, you know, movement in popular music, yeah. <laughs> certainly in the, in the last hundred years that I can think of something mm-hmm. that kind of almost, you know, almost universally despised by critics um, mm-hmm. and by critics, you know, across the, you know, you know, sort of a, across a wide spectrum of, you know, American musical culture, whether it was, you know, people coming out of the world of jazz and soul and R&B who despised mm-hmm. it or white rock and roll who despised it, um, that it was considered to be sort of artificial and fake and so on. But I, I think that disco, um, maybe it was so controversial because it sort of came to the fore maybe a little bit past its moment. And so it kind of represented a moment in American culture that was already passing. Certainly, you know, if we kind of look back a few years from, from 1977 to the 
you know, 73, 74, when disco really begins to emerge, emerge not so much on, you know, the AM radio band or in big selling records or in Hollywood movies, but with the sort of revival of discotheques, of dance clubs. And it's really mm -hmm. fed by a variety of alternative cultural streams. Um, right. So, uh, you know, it is, um, it's certainly fed by um, a gay subculture uh, very much. Um, it is fed by, um, by women who sort of reject the sort of macho rituals of sort of 1970s stadium rock and roll. Um, and by, uh, you know, you know, I also by, you know, Latino and black people um, um, interested in sort of, uh, you know, R&B music, but also in a revival of dancing. And mm -hmm. so uh, you get this sort of underground world of these clubs that really the first celebrities are not, um, you know, songwriters or musicians or performers but are the DJs who develop these reputations for, um, you know, these very clever segues from one song to another to sort of keep the energy of the mm -hmm. dance groove going and who are kind of calling out to people uh, on the dance floor as well to encourage them. And so um, one of the interesting things about the subculture of disco is that it brought together uh, you know, gays and straights, women and men, black, white, and Latino in this kind of integrated community of the dance floor at a time when, you know, dreams of racial integration were fading. And in fact, people were beginning to question the whole idea of, of integration, to see it mm -hmm. as a kind of form of assimilation. And, um, I think it's interesting that when, and, and, and that I think speaks to some of the resistance to disco. And here is one of those places where my sort of professional identity as a historian of the 1970s and my personal experience as a you know person who came of age in the 1970s came together. And that is yeah. the, the whole disco sucks movement that really began uh -huh. to take shape, <laughs> you know, mostly in, you know, what George Clinton would have called the vanilla suburbs, you know, the mm. surrounding the, you know, um, um, much more ethnically and racially diverse city centers. And that's where there were, you know, there was an anti-disco movement and mm -hmm. people would go to hear um, white rock and roll bands and they often would be led in chants of disco sucks, disco sucks. On Long Island, where I grew up, the big band mm -hmm. in this movement was Twisted Sister, who became big in the no. 1980s. <laughs> they had a yeah. huge hit song called We're Not Gonna Take It. And yeah. interestingly, Dee Snyder, the, the leader of, um, 
of Twisted Sister, which in the mm-hmm. in the nineteen seventy, I mean, you know, you know, it's kind of a political leftist and a quite articulate one. And mm-hmm. the band appeared in drag, and they were very much influenced by the Rocky Horror Picture Show and so uh-huh. on. But you know, on Long Island in the nineteen seventies, they led their fans in chants of "Disco sucks, disco sucks." And as you've already hinted, that anti-disco movement sort of kind of reached its crescendo in 1979 at Chicago's Comiskey Park, home of the Chicago White Sox, when, you know, team wasn't doing very well to help get, uh, to get fans into the stands. They did a promotion with a local radio station for Disco mm-hmm. Demolition Night. Um, mm-hmm. in which a big pile of disco records was set on flame, uh, you know, in the outfield of... Uh, and then uh, and, 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 the discs were being thrown like frisbees. Yeah, and, and, and yeah, basically a riot, a riot ensued. <laughs> the White Sox had to forfeit the second game of the doubleheader. And uh-huh. disturbingly, then some racial violence spread out into the nearby neighborhood, which is, of course, the mostly black South Side Historic, of yeah, Chicago. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so I mean, so it's interesting. Thank you for the kind of like discussion of disco for listeners who weren't aware. Um, the D. Snyder stuff is really interesting because, yeah, I mean, I Twisted Sister is so theatrical, and I feel like so many of those like 80s um, kind of hair metal bands really owe a lot to kind of the um, the gender nonconformity that you kind of maybe see in disco as well. Um, and then I also know D. through um, his testimony to Congress uh, for the, what is it? The, parental resource yeah, music yeah. center yeah kind of arguing for pmrc you know, parents music resource center yeah yeah, ah, yeah thank yeah, you yeah. yes um uh so that's that's interesting that he was leading uh, death to disco <laughs> sorry uh, disco sucks chance um in the 70s um but yeah so because so we kind of like yeah so disco is a thing and then this i mean this movie is the watershed moment for disco isn't it kind of yeah. nationally globally as well i assume or oh yeah globally this is a, yeah. i mean really not only does it sort of you know lead it to sort of global popularity and it becomes a phenomenon internationally but i think one of the things that's really interesting about that is that when disco goes mainstream and commercial um and huge popular artists start to record. So the Rolling Stones make a disco record. Rod right. Stewart makes a disco record. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Bee Gees, of course, you know, are you know make <laughs> the most iconic disco record of all, uh, dominating the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever. Um, but um, so those are though. British and Australian mega acts are recording it, but yeah. but American rock and roll acts, they rejected it. It was, you know, I mean, I think because of the way that it was gender non-conforming, that it was racially mixed and so on, that it was something that they that they shied away from, even though, you know, these mainstream British and Australian acts embraced it. Um, hmm. The 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 European producer Giorgio Moroder made a huge star out of many um, American Latin and Black performers in disco. Donna Summer, first and foremost mm-hmm. among them, 
but he recorded her in Germany, not in the United States. So the for quite a while, the, the American recording industry and you know, most of its leading stars, they never jumped on. They were always suspicious of the disco bandwagon. Yeah, I guess I, I, my disco literacy is pretty poor, um, I have to say. Like, I know, I, I think I was watching this and realized, okay, so like all the songs I know about, or all the disco songs I know come from this movie. Because, um, I mean, in addition to the Bee Gees, you have like the, it, there's Donna Summer in this movie too, isn't there? Um, I don't think she's Last on. Dance, or is it? I don't think she's, I mean, maybe okay. is she in the movie? She's in. not on the soundtrack album. Okay, um, which, yeah, as you mentioned at the top of this, was like the best-selling album of all time for a bit until... Yeah. Michael Jackson's Thriller, I think, came around. Yeah, I think it might have um, been uh, Fleetwood Mac's Rumors and then Michael Jackson's Thriller, but we should probably okay. look that up. <laughs> yeah, I will. Um, I can uh, do a bit of Googling real quick. Um, audience, I, this will appear like no time has passed at all for you. <laughs> <laughs> I will also say that, um, uh, you know, other than the, B- the Bee Gees were the big star on the soundtrack album, so... You know, some of the other songs like the Tramps, Disco Inferno and, you know, Yvonne Elliman and Tavares are, you know, these were bands that from the disco world that kind of uh, Vicky Sue Robinson's turned the beat around that, um, you know, were sort of launched into, um, you know, kind of popular stardom for a while through the disco phenomenon, but they didn't really have lengthy careers and they didn't ever make a transition out of disco so the Bee Gees were really the only big name act on the soundtrack to Saturday Night Fever okay yeah um so they both came out in 77 rumors came out in February and Saturday Night came out in November so I wonder if rumors had that had it briefly and then saturday night took over um yeah. but you know yeah, it's interesting that it was because oh, the bgs i was reading as well that um the bgs didn't get involved until after production so when you see kind of john travolta walking down the streets of brooklyn he's not listening to staying alive because that wouldn't be added i mean they wouldn't write the song until after the movie was finished um he was listening was it um boz skaggs and stevie wonder mm-hmm. so it's a totally different musical sound or landscape soundscape than what we actually get in the finished product yeah no that's fascinating and uh it's almost it's almost hard to believe right because that the bg sound is so much a part of that that opening scene that really memorable opening scene yeah i mean it fits so well and i think i'm seeing you i think in your synopsis of the movie, you mentioned like he has a dead end job. He's going nowhere, which the Bee Gees really embrace for their lyrics yes, of staying yes. alive as well. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we, you know, it's we, a fascinating. It's uh, one thing we didn't talk about though, was that first scene with his boss in the paint store when, yeah. you know, when he, at, and I, and I think that's another memorable scene in which he, you know, asks his, boss for an advance because he wants to buy this really beautiful shirt that he you know he (laughs) has his eye on and you know his boss says payday is monday and Mm -hmm. tony says yeah but everywhere else payday is friday or saturday and his boss says well 
you know, I do that deliberately because if I pay you on Friday, then you spend the weekend boozing and whoring and, you know, and, the, and, and you got nothing. Um, and this way you save a little, you have a future. And, mm. you know, and Tony says, fuck the future. And the boss says, no, Tony, you know, the future fucks you. You can't fuck the future. The future fucks you. If you ain't mm -hmm. planned for it, the, f the future will fuck you. But then what we kind of learn later in the film, when Tony and his boss have a kind of falling out and Tony briefly thinks he's fired, but then is right. brought back that his boss points to the other employees who mm -hmm. have been there and the paint store, you know, so-and-so has been here for 15 years. So-and-so right. has been here for 10 years. We kind of see a, a quick succession of middle-aged men <laughs> right. working across the store. Right. Yeah. And, you know, Tony has this, you know, this terrifying vision of what uh -huh. his prospects are if he stays in this world, that he's going to be mm -hmm. an employee in this paint store for the rest of his life. And I think that's sort of part of his motivation to try to get up and out from it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and move to Manhattan. Um, speaking of Tony's future, uh, have you ever seen the sequel to this movie? No, I have not. What is the sequel called? Oh my gosh. Oh. Um, hold on. I actually don't know it off the top of my head. Let me get it. Um, it was directed and written by Sylvester Stallone. Oh. Uh, also a Rocky poster in his bedroom mm. uh, at the start of the movie there. I'm sorry, I wasn't better prepared for this. <laughs> no, I, I, well, so I, it has a 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> um, it's not well regarded at all. It came out in 1983. Mm -hmm. Yes, okay, so it's called Staying Alive. Mm -hmm. um, directed and written with, uh, by mm -hmm. Sylvester Stallone, another kind of like 70s mm -hmm. icon. Um, and I haven't seen it either, but it follows Tony trying to make it on Broadway as a dancer mm -hmm. um, to various or varying success um i think it yeah it did all right at the box office but critics did not like it um but it's interesting that they tried to kind of like follow up on the success and follow tony's journey into manhattan and that it sounds like from the, from the sounds of it it wasn't very successful um but maybe kind of generally then like we can also talk about the well we've really been talking about it this entire time um but some of like the movie's legacy and it, people's reaction to it so i maybe from a personal standpoint do you remember like your first reaction to this and maybe people around you and what the the word on the street was in 77 well i do remember what my personal reaction was to seeing it it's a little bit embarrassing though because i actually <laughs> saw the movie for the first time on a date and, oh, okay. Um, and, you know. Interesting date and, movie, yeah. And I think it was a first date. And so oh, boy. It was, it, was, it was not a good choice for a first date. It was okay. definitely not what either I or my date were expecting. And so okay. it was, um, yeah, it was hard to know where to go from there, I would say. So. <laughs> Okay, but I mean, if, if the histories I read about it, it almost sounds like it was an instant success. Like the movie came out mm -hmm. and everybody was like, yes, I need the disco. I need the Bee Gees in my life more and more. And I want to be a part of this world of light up floors and polyester suits. Well, I think, I mean, certainly one of the things that the movie did was turn disco into this mainstream 
phenomenon in which you know mm-hmm. middle-aged people were were suddenly you know buying you know polyester suits and you know dance dresses and heels and going to these clubs dance contests like this uh, you know spread around the country briefly as well as you know people that mocked it and were even um, threatened by it and opposed to it. So, yes, the movie, um, I mean, the movie did become something of, um, you know, an immediate sensation. It seemed to touch a nerve. And yet, when you watch the film, you know, the the dance sequences are such a small part of the total running time of yeah. the film and the grim realities of the world in which not so much Tony, because he's an exceptional character, but his friends live in and the very low ceiling of, of the prospects that they face uh, in the world um, mm-hmm. is what's really, I think. So to me, the film, the actual film is very different from the popular memory of the film and the scenes that are most often, you know, shown in, you know, in excerpts. That there's a real kind of almost cognitive dissonance between, you know, how people, even people at the time apprehended and certainly people since then have remembered the film. And, you know, in some ways, what you expected is kind of the film that people remember that, you know, the young couple triumphs against adversity and wins the dance contest. And yet that's that's not what happens at all. The dance contest is not the climax. It's an anticlimax. And then, you know, the climactic scenes are, you know, on this bridge, yeah, which on the bridge. I mean, we've talked a bit about the violence there, yeah. but also kind of amidst the sexual violence, you also have um, almost kind of the most tragic character. Well, um, Ned takes a cake for that, but certainly the most tragic of uh, Tony's friends, who this entire film has been looking for Tony's attention and clearly in distress and in a particularly, I think, really good scene with. Tony's brother, mm-hmm. who was recently left the priesthood, um, reveals that his girlfriend is pregnant and he doesn't really know what to do. And this character, in the kind of like climactic scene of the film, is goofing around on this bridge that they have goofed around on before um, when he slips and falls off. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, in the words of, you know, kind of the cops show up and Tony says another like really poignant line. Um, there are ways of killing yourself without killing yourself, right? Yeah. So it's kind of the, which gets back, and then that, I think that's the final, the final straw for Tony, because that's when he, you know, he doesn't get back in the car, and then he spends the night riding the the subways. Yeah. The subway. And the, you know, the role of the bridge in that film, I think, is really mm. interesting. Um, not only do they have the multiple scenes of sort of hijinks on the film before that sort of catastrophic ending that you describe, but also there's one of the scenes in which Tony is 
kind of romancing Stephanie, he, you know, yes. he takes her to, you know, the park that's, you know, looking up at the bridge. And we find mm -hmm. out that he knows every detail about the construction of the bridge, yep. how much concrete is in it, how much steel, how high it is, how long how it, it is, is, and every, all of those details about the bridge. And so I think that the, you know, the bridge is, you know, kind of symbolic of the life that he has known. And then, you know, when he rides the subway all night and ends up in Manhattan, that that is telling us that he has, you know, kind of left all of that behind. Yeah, no, I, I mean, I think the, the scene, you know, I think we're kind of told to read that death as much as suicide, as as much as suicide as by somebody who just sees himself facing a, a dead end with no real way out. And so, you know, doesn't care if he dies, that it was, as Tony said, a way of killing yourself without um, killing yourself. And then, you know, yeah. we also learn, you know, I mean, you know, the lives of so many of these characters have tragic dimensions. I mean, one of the things that we learn when Tony, uh, I think it's the first time that Tony goes to see Stephanie in her New York apartment was that, you know, she has this kind of weird relationship with somebody uh, in the office uh -huh, who seems to have been kind of, you know, exploiting her and, mm -hmm. you know, is the reason that she has this apartment and right. Tony doesn't understand and we, the audience, don't understand what this relationship is, though we can kind of guess about Infer, that yeah. uh, as well. And then, of course, you know... Yeah, you know, perhaps maybe the most tragic figure in the whole film is is the character of Annette, who um, mm -hmm. who um, is also somebody who wants Tony's attention and who, yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, no. So that's you know, and is becomes the victim of the gang rape in the film. Um, you know, it's kind of another tragic character as well. Yeah, definitely kind of these people caught up in their lives um and what yeah she's really interesting I think that's kind of an interesting I don't know if the movie intentionally did this but just yeah kind of Annette's character um who we haven't really talked about her a whole lot but yeah like you said she wants Tony's attention we're introduced to her as um somebody I think Tony went on a date with mm -hmm. and he wasn't really feeling it um, she obviously still wants to be with Tony and she clearly sees him as somebody who could possibly be her husband one day. Um, mm -hmm. And she's looking for this kind of like traditional marital structure with him. And he clearly sees that that's not happening because he's kind of in this world of sexual liberation of disco. Um, and it, you know, he tells her you have to decide whether you're going to be he uses a word I don't really want to yeah, say, but <laughs> we don't want we don't want to say that now. <laughs> no, British people can say it. I can't. Um, but he want you know either like what is it? Um, like stay pure essentially, or um, become kind of like one of these disco girls who are just kind of like hanging around all the time. Um, and she's kind of she has her also has to make this like decision herself, and she ultimately also interesting also comes pretty directly straightly directly straight from the. Um, the newspaper article, hmm. or the uh, not the newspaper article, but the, the, the magazine article. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Um, but kind of like interesting. I thought I was kind of thinking about how her storyline 
and also um uh stephanie's kind of functioning as like a reaction or looking a way to look at the aftermath of um the gains of feminism in the in the 60s and earlier in the 70s as well right kind of like you think of like career working women and then what sexual sexual liberation actually meant for women mm -hmm. at the time yeah i think it also um i mean i think the film also points up to the sort of the slow and gradual unrolling of some of those changes mm -hmm. in that, you know, the boy who maybe falls off the bridge and maybe kills himself, right, feels, you know, he feels trapped because he got his girlfriend pregnant and that, you know, there are only the two choices that she will have an abortion or he will marry her. Um, and the... Um, and, you know, Annette clearly sees that, you know, she wants to be like, you know, all of her married sisters. I think Tony mocks yes. her because yeah. you're always talking about your married sister, your married sister, uh -huh. you want to be a married sister. And so it, in this working class world, um, you know, you know, you know, the possibilities of women's liberation don't seem very real, except maybe to except maybe to Stephanie. Um, certainly, she at least is seeing, you know, career women in her, in the workplace, um, and kind of maybe imagining a different life. Though um, there's not really any kind of challenge to conventional gender expectations in the film no yeah. yeah and it sounds like or i don't know what the audience i guess is kind of left to ponder about like what she's done to kind of become secure mm -hmm. in that job yeah, as well yeah, yes in, in another kind of like uh, look at gender relations i think as well on in one of the dinner scenes i don't think it's the first one we see um but tony moves to clean up the dinner plates yeah. Um, and his dad says, like, why are you doing the dishes? Like, leave that for the woman. Then he lets his younger sister. So the movie kind of, like, peppers all this in in really interesting mm, ways. Yeah. Um, I don't know if we should give the director who was... Did I get anything? Oh, gosh. Oh, um, John Badham. John Badham, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, or the screenwriter who replaced Nick Cohn, who was originally hired to write the screenplay for this, um, Norman Wexler. But it's, a, it's an interesting look at all of this. Um, so kind of maybe going back to the movie's legacies again. Uh, yeah, and, and the reactions to it. Uh, I mean, critics really liked it. Uh, Gene Siskel, kind of the, um, the uh, critical partner of Roger Ebert, is one of his favorite movies of all time. He bought the white suit from the movie mm -hmm. and just like loved, loved, loved it. Uh, the famous uh, critic Pauline Kael also really enjoyed it. Um, Awards-wise, it netted a Best Actor nomination for John Travolta. Um, I read one source that apparently said uh, there was an outcry when the soundtrack didn't get any musical nominations. Uh, and then the year following the 1978 Oscars, another disco song won, which was kind of felt as like a replacement, like, oh, sorry, we decided that <laughs> Fever didn't win. So here's this other disco song instead. Um, and it, you know, it's kind of showed, it showed up on a lot of best of lists um, of the movies of 1977 and was put on the Library of Congress National Film Registry in 2010. So it's, I mean, this, and as we've kind of like talked this whole time, just like an outstanding, like long kind of presence in our cultural memory of the 1970s. Yeah, and it's funny because it's one of many films of the late 1970s that kind of 
deals with the kind of disintegration of the post-war order that had taken shape and that had, you know, raised so many working-class Americans into some kind of more, you know, comfortable, secure, middle-class existence, home-owning, union members with real prospects, children being sent to college, dreams of upward mobility, and the collapse of that. There are so, you know, there are so many films, um, maybe some that are, you know, artistically more substantial. I think of the, uh, the Paul Schrader film Blue Collar starring Richard Pryor, Yafet Koto, and Harvey Keitel as a trio of auto workers. Or, um, you know, we could come up with many more. And yet, um, you know, this film, I think, you know, largely because of the music and the association with disco, but also I think we have to give credit to Travolta's performance, oh, which is, yeah, he which really is sparkling the movie, here, yeah. um, you know, has made this you know, perhaps, you know, more than any other film, a sort of document of that sort of moment of, you know, dissolution in the in the late 1970s. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, from here, he goes on to have, I mean, this, like, as you mentioned, he was kind of like a TV yeah. actor before. Is it Welcome Back Cotter, Cotter right? Um, and uh, I think his first TV appearance was on Emergency, um, thanks to my mom for pointing that out to me. Um, and then after this, I mean, he's in Greece the next year, and that just like catapults him to even more, which is, uh, I mean, another movie I'd love to do on the podcast one day, um, the 70s take on the 1950s. <laughs> From there, his career is kind of set, and he kind of has his own ebbs and flows. Um, but I think that the young Travolta, right, the, the films that sort of make his career are Saturday Night Fever, Grease, and then mm-hmm. Urban Cowboy. And in okay. these totally different settings, um, both chronologically and geographically, he kind of plays the similar character of, you know, the, uh, you know, sort of the, the cool guy who doesn't fit in the world that he grew up in and sort of has to, you know, confront a changing reality Mm -hmm. and make choices that maybe alienate him from his peer group. His traditional friends. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, yeah. actually, I don't know about Urban Cowboy, but I mean, in Greece and this as well, like certainly like a more sensitive side than would first let on um, in Greece and Saturday Night. So it's an... Yeah, a weird movie, I guess, and just like kind of, but like a, a well-made one. I don't know. Seventy-seven is such a, such a strong. I mean, the late seventies are such a strong year for movies, right? Because I mean, in seventy-seven you have Star Wars, which represents another like seismic shift in kind of film culture. Um, and Annie Hall wins Best Picture that or that year. It just. I mean, you kind of talk about it a little bit in your book as well, or this kind of like 70s moment. Um, Jaws comes out, is it a year later, I think? Um, or two you, years later? Maybe a year. So right around the same year time. Earlier? Yeah. 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 Mm. It's just kind of like the, the cinematic culture mm. is changing as well. Okay, Jaws is 75. Yeah. yeah no. So mm-hmm. kind of you have the emergence of the blockbuster. Um, yeah. No. And so, I mean, I think this film kind of, you know, in some ways, it's an outlier because, you know, it's not part of this kind of early 70s world of director cinema that where we see these kind of iconoclastic films 
that really kind of represented sort of the integral vision of, you know, screenwriters and directors and that sort of came out of the collapse of the Hollywood studio system mm -hmm. in the end of the 60s and the beginning of the 70s. And we can kind of think of, you know, you know, the Godfather films, but also the early films of Martin Scorsese, you know, yes. um, the films of Robert Altman, John Cassavetes, sort of in that vein. But then, you know, you know, my little version of trying to explain what happens is that in that world, um, the empire struck back, you know, <laughs> in, in the form of the n newly reconstituted uh, Hollywood studios, now most of them owned by big, you know, multinational conglomerates. Um, mm -hmm. And that were really, you know, looking to make blockbusters and pioneered new forms of movie production and also distribution and marketing. And, you know, Jaws um, in 1975 kind of starts that trend, but certainly then we get these blockbuster films the disaster films like Towering Inferno and Earthquake. And then, you know, and I think actually, you know, um, a film, you know, st you know, Star Wars is kind of, it's a blockbuster, but it definitely has elements of, you know, it takes on board some of the lessons, if you were, of that previous decade of mm -hmm. the anti-Hollywood films. And, yeah. um, and, um, and I think that, um, you know, Saturday Night Fever is a, you know, becomes a blockbuster, but it also, I think, is a, a pretty gritty take on a, you know, sometimes disturbing social reality. No, definitely. It's kind of interesting. I, and this is kind of the way the blockbuster is being formed here. In, I mean, at this point when Saturday Night Fever comes out, and how the, I mean, the rules aren't set in stone yet, right? Like they can be kind of like gritty and all of like this as well. The rating of this movie is interesting, or kind of the history of, I don't know how much you know about the, the history of the ratings of this movie. No. Um, so, I mean, it gets an R rating. This is pre-PG-13. Mm -hmm. um, so there's no kind of in-between between R and PG. Mm -hmm. um, and pretty quickly there, uh, I think both cinemas and once it starts airing on television, create a PG cut mm -hmm. version which cuts most of the grittier stuff we've been talking about and kind of does turn into the movie that i think does live in people's minds of just being this like fun disco movie right um so it's that's i, I don't know the dichotomy there is interesting well yeah and i'm sure that like recut. Yeah, i mean you, you for television you would not only have had to cut out you know some of the those gritty scenes and the violence that we talked about but also a lot of the language i mean so yeah. there are, you know <laughs> beyond the curse words like fuck the future that i said there are some you know racial slurs and you know the word that you were uncomfortable saying and so on mm -hmm. it's pretty um yeah, I mean, so I think it there there the television version must have had a lot of bleeps, uh, you know, bleeping out of yeah. of language <laughs> in it as well. Yeah, no. Yeah, significantly shorter, I imagine, as well, because I think the movie does pad itself out through. I mean, I mean really, the disco pads itself more than the the gritty mm -hmm. plot. 
And I think, I mean, I, I, to me, that's a really interesting question, which is the whole history of re-ratings once the rating system kind of came in and replaced the old Hayes Code of Censorship, you know, at the, mm. uh, at the end of the 1960s. So, for instance, Midnight Cowboy, which was the 1970 Academy Award winner for Best Picture and is a film basically about this sort of sordid world of male prostitution and... Um, mm -hmm. uh, with some heavy language and gritty themes as well. Um, that originally carried an X rating. It was the first, and I believe still the only film with an X rating to ever win the Oscar for Best Picture. But then it's subsequent, I think today it carries an R rating. So it, it has been subsequently been re-rated and some of that may have to do with editing, but I think it maybe also has to do with sort of changing standards and expectations, you know, since the movie came out in 1969. Yeah, it's interesting. I think um, the podcast, You Must Remember This, uh, which kind of looks at the history of Hollywood over mm -hmm. the 20th century, just did a, a season about sex in 80s movies. And the host there kind of talked about how the X rate, the origins of the X rating, and how it quickly kind of um, attracted or it became synonymous with pornographic films. Um, so it's interesting that I think there's an interesting history there where it's kind of like we originally it didn't and it wasn't originally intended to only be associated with those. Um, but it's interesting how that history is with within just that movie. Um, I haven't seen it, so I really can't speak to it much more beyond that. But that's fascinating. Okay. Oh, well, you should definitely see um, it. <laughs> no, I, I want to. Yeah. I, I do. I am on a mission to one day watch every Best Picture uh, winner. I'll get there eventually. I think I'm about, I don't know, I think I've seen about 30 so far. Um, I think if anyone else, anything else to mention before we wrap things up? Um, are there any like special shout outs you'd like to give to the movie like things especially things we haven't really talked about that you especially admire or I think we've covered most of the things that really just grabbed me um, uh, can't really think of anything else okay well I think uh, that might be it then and we're gonna close the chapter on uh, this Saturday night <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, yeah, it's been a joy talking about Saturday Night Fever with Fevers. Um, is there anything you would like to plug uh, or any like books you tell uh, let people know where to find you or anything you've been enjoying recently? Well, it's hard to believe, but it's been 20 years um, now since my book on the 1970s came out. But, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, it does have sections on Saturday Night Fever, on disco, um, and on many other aspects of the <coughs> pop culture of the 1970s. So um, if your listeners are interested in that, they might want to grab a copy. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's yep, not too shameless self-promotion. <laughs> no, <laughs> I mean, you have plenty of other books as well. So you're working on a book soon, like what, the Oxford edition of what, Progressive and Gilded Age, right? Is it? Uh, it's, it'll be the, it's, so it's, it's, it's the, the book, the working title is Brand Name America, The Emergence okay. of the Modern United States, and it covers the period 1896 to 1929, and that's for the Oxford history of the United States, which is a, okay. you know, series um, that when it's done will cover the history of the United States in 14 or 15 volumes. So my, right. mine's, yeah, mine's the 1896 to 1929 volume. Yes. 
But that's still a bit down the pipeline, isn't it? I'm afraid so, even though it's long yeah, okay, overdue. So. <laughs> <laughs> Listeners will have to wait a little bit longer to, uh, before they can read your work on that. Um, okay, no, that's, that's great. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. And with that, I will say that has been our episode on Saturday Night Fever. Thank you so much for joining us. You can follow us on Twitter at Flashback Histopod. That is at F-L-S-H-B-C-K-H-I-S-T-O-P-O-D. And we will be back again soon to take another look at American history on the silver screen. Until then, goodbye.